But if you can't laugh at yourself, um, I think we've lost that kind of humility about things, and that's that's really a troubling kind of thing. I talk about that a lot. This this lack of humility, people taking credit for for things that just are not to be taken credit for. Uh, but that's how the world works, you know. Superclusters is the podcast to demystify the secrets, stories, and tactics behind the money that moves the venture capital world. I'm so excited to have Howard Lindzen, who is the general partner at Social Leverage, join us today. Social Leverage is a firm he founded back in 09, so that is a blast from the past. I'm sure we'll, we'll get deep into this as well. Um, you're also the co-founder and chairman of StockTwits, the largest social network for investors and traders. And Howard, you're also an investor in rockstar companies that many of our listeners probably have heard of, including Buddy Media, Two Mogul, Robinhood, LifeLock, as well as an LP. And correct me, I set the record straight here, but in Multicoin, Techstars, obviously there was one that introduced us that will go nameless for now just because I haven't gotten his permission. Um, and Howard, you're an amazing host over at Panic with Friends, one of the best named podcasts of the century, if I might say so myself a writer, a profound blogger, an avid cyclist, someone who journals daily, if my research serves me right, um, and a proud father of two. Howard, welcome to the show. That's a good intro. I've been alive a while. It's, you know, I'm, I'm trying to concatenate your entire life story into, what was that, a minute? Um, hopefully I did it justice, but feel free to like fill in the blanks um, if, if I miss anything. Well, I think, I think to fill in the blanks, you'd have to talk about some of the, sweat, the misses. Um, we're in the business of swinging, getting the bat off your shoulder. And there's periods where maybe once or two in your, once or twice in your lifetime, you shouldn't be swinging. And I think we just went through that period. Uh, so I feel pretty good about not swinging as often. I can look at this type, the few that I swung at the last year and go, what the hell was I thinking? But I think it's more important to go, man, I was in the batter's box. I saw a fucking perfect hanging slider. And I walk, I just didn't, didn't pull the trigger. And so I, I think it's not fair to not talk about the huge misses. You know, the best, the best for, we talked about self deprecation or earlier on. You can't be a good investor if you haven't just been in there and just, ah, just a dumb idea. So for me, it was a Twitter at a 20 million valuation, you know, teed up by Fred Wilson. I had a chance to put it in 25,000 and 2000, maybe eight. And I balked at the valuation. Ha, ha, ha. And then uh, I got in a bit of a row with uh, Mark Pincus over valuation and what I had committed to back in around the same time. At a, I had committed at around a $3 million valuation. By the time the term sheet came out, it was a $20 million valuation. Same Fred Wilson. And it was like, fuck off. Uh, I can't, how am I going to make money at this? And I think combined those two investments would have been worth about $10 million. So it's easy to, you know, we just went through a massive bull market started by the cloud, Apple, uh, which goes to what we were talking about, the lack of humility and all these investors that think they're responsible for uh, the bubble. And and um, so it was, our job was to just be invested. If you were invested from 2009 to 2020 and didn't make money, well, you maybe shouldn't be allowed on the internet. <laughs> At this point. <laughs> so 
I, uh, that goes to like the period we went through. Now, I think those that invested from 21 to 23 maybe shouldn't be allowed on the internet either. And time will tell. Hopefully, hopefully, uh, I'm wrong about that. Um, so I think it's really important to know kind of what we were investing in and what I missed. Another one I missed that's really bugs me because it was just teed up is Carta right around a 4 million valuation fit in my thesis. We were investors in AngelList and started stocked with Robinhood. And, and it, the deal was presented on AngelList and I was an investor in AngelList. I remember talking to Naval about it, saying, you know, this is like a really good idea. Maybe AngelList should be doing this. Uh, at the time, the company was called eShares. And it was 4 million valuation. I just had those email conversations with Henry uh, it wasn't like I had an hour to decide. I had like a month to decide. Like the deal was not getting done where it took a while to get done. This is like 2014, 15, maybe, uh, when deals weren't getting done in a week and, uh, just passed. Just thought that there'd be so many competitors and, uh, that AngelList, you know, AngelList now competes, but for million valuation, that's a pretty big miss. Oh, there are so many places I want to touch on here. Um, you mentioned taking things off the table. I think that is a very interesting conversation all of, of itself because we, in, in the investing world, we talk too much about when when are you in? What is the, What are the entry prices? You talked about earlier, like, you know, Carta, um, you know, uh, Zynga uh, and, and some of these other ones. And but we don't talk about the flip side because the whole goal of an investor is to buy low, sell high. And that selling point and is is more of an art than a science, but I'd love to double in on that. I, but I want to hit snooze on that for now. The other thing I wanted to touch on is you mentioned you had the opportunity to invest in Carta eShares at the time, and you had a month to make the decision. And I'm curious if you remember the play-by-play of how you came to deciding I'm not going to invest. Did you find yourself second guessing over time? Were you initially on board? I mean, sound like in terms of valuation, you were initially on board and then you heard the the 20 mil or like whatever it was um, that you, you you convinced yourself out of it. Could you walk us through the play-by-play? No, Carter was just straight. Henry couldn't close me. I mean, that's on me. Like he, what money was not as easy then. He was back at the, back in those days because the way AngelList worked, a lot of deals were just going into network. You know, it was there. It was called eShares. Seemed like a very simple hack to build a spreadsheet. That, uh, but because I was so bullish on AngelList, I immediately called Naval. I go, Naval, like why? Why are you putting competition on your website, raising money for like a competing product? And, and remember, the play-by-play was Naval, and I used to talk a lot about this and at the time. And he built such an amazing product, but, you know, mistakes were made, I think, in terms of, like, strategy, um, is he goes, ah, I could build that in a couple of weeks, um, which engineers and good product people believe. And I believed him, too, like, very strongly believed him and just dismissed Henry as, you know, he couldn't close me. Like, I think if... I don't blame him, but like if you call me four more times, I might have, because with a lot of founders, I'll cancel meetings. I'll test them to see if they will follow up. I mean, there's a period where it didn't matter. You, you had an hour and if you decided you weren't in, they forgot what your name was. But in the real world, they would call, they, you would cancel, they would, you would try and see, test them to see if they could follow up. Back then, 
Uh, I just shared it with everybody I knew. It was right in my sweet spot. There is literally no excuse for passing on the deal. And what's so funny is at the time, my LPs are very much friends of mine. Fred Wilson was an LP, uh, Roger Ehrenberg, people that I generally share ideas with. If, if I think they're interesting, I, for whatever reason, I didn't pass this one around. I just shared it with my team and I kind of knew we should do it, but I let Naval kind of talk me out of it. He didn't purposely talk me out of it. I just, I just used that as a data point saying, I'm already an investor in this space. Um, I don't need the aggravation. And I wasn't convinced that Henry could bring it over the goal line. So there's just, uh, and what's funny is I remember the series A, Fred sent me, you know, I remember Fred writing about leading the series A, and I'm like, fuck. (laughs) Someone you didn't pass to when you had the chance to invest. And uh, and that's why Fred's the best, and I'm just average. But, you know, uh, it was just, I go back and look at the email threads, and Henry did nothing wrong, and uh, I just missed it. I'm so knowing what you know today, and let's mm-hmm. say you you chatted with Naval already at AngelList, and he's like, "Dude, I could build this in a couple of weeks." Um, what what would the self talk need to look like in your mind to change that decision? Because write the check. We it was 100k, 200k at the time when we were writing checks. <clears throat> a six million dollar fund. We were it was we couldn't afford to be wrong. Like, I know that space really well, and it was a hole that needed to be filled. And it's just a mistake. You know, the, the Twitter Zynga stuff was like, I, I could walk through a million reasons why we didn't do it on valuation at the time. And the context of the market was much different back then, and deals weren't getting done then. But there was just no reason. And um, sometimes you miss one. You say no reason, because obviously this is this at that point in time, and probably still now, it, it is common sense to you. But if you were to break it down to be like, what was what was the bull case for for e-shares at the time that um, you were just so damn excited about? You saw there was a gap in the market, but how did how did you personally define gap in the market? Okay, good question. So, so the thing is, I didn't think that was the killer feature. I thought it was a killer wedge. But my big gap was, how do you create, like with Robinhood and Stocktrips, how do you reimagine with Angelus, so I cornered the market a little bit in terms of how I thought about it. But I know I was an investor in Y charts and chart IQ, so I had everything covered. But my big idea was, and this is something I shared with Fred and Roger in 2007 when I cold called Fred, I was like, Fred, I called Fred back in 2006, 2007. I go, you're an idiot. And this is like literally how I talked to Fred because I didn't know him. I'm like, I don't get this. Like you invest a million or $2 million in Mark Pincus or Twitter. They go on to make $2 billion, right? And then they give their money, the $2 billion to Goldman Sachs that charges them 1% in perpetuity to do nothing, and and just manage the bit their money, right? And then the next time Mark has an idea, he calls you and you take all the risk again. And I, I said you should close the loop and 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 um, and you're seeing Andreessen do this now. I go Union Square should just be a complete asset management firm, right? And and further along, and he said, oh, it's a great idea, but I don't want to be. You know, he'd gone through the bubble before. 
and he didn't want to be in the asset management business. He just wanted to be a straight VC. And kudos to him. Like he thought it was a good idea, but he's like, not for me. And we, I was way ahead of the curve. And and then uh, Carter comes along. I'm like, this is the perfect hack to see the future, right? So if you can see every cap table, right? What Goldman Sachs does is they don't have to see every cap table. They just have a thousand people reading documents and, and headlines. And when they see a company doing well, they call the CEO and they say, listen, we're going to loan you $10 million, right? And you're going to move all your shares over to Goldman Sachs, right? And so it's the form of a cock block. They, they basically wait until something rises and then send in the Coke and the, and the girls and the, and the loans. And they take that cap table control of that cap table. Right. Imagine now knowing when those cap table, knowing where every share on that cap table is right throughout the stack, which Carta does do. And they haven't executed on a lot of stuff like X and some of these other. Those are things I, I worried about at the beginning. Like, couldn't they take this idea? Did they understand what they were had? And what they had was a future Schwab. I, I believe that someone should be in the money management business, not in the spreadsheet business. So if you control the cap table, you can offer every employee at those cap tables, hey, while you're waiting for your maybe your company to work, why don't you open up a brokerage account and we can do all these services for you? And I don't think Carta's done any of that. So my vision of where Carta should be is not any, and they're still a five, six billion dollar company. It's not anywhere near where I think they would have gone. So I probably would have been frustrated with the direction of the company. <laughs> So I believe the long tail of this business is just to be an asset manager and hold a blanket over these cap tables. I mean, from what I know, Carta is slowly inching there, but I think the majority of their business still... It's going to be much harder now for them to inch it. So you needed to do this. They were so close. And so so as a seed investor, I was trying to just make sure I covered all of it. And I missed that wedge. Right. Still would have been a hell of a return. Still would have been a hell of a return. Oh, totally. I mean, the the juggernaut in which it plays today is still like phenomenal for any seed investor, for any early stage investor in Carta. Um, and it's a very transcendent idea in which they were building on as well. Taking stuff off the table, taking money off the table, right? Knowing, like obviously where, where Carta sits and I, I, I might be, I need to fact check or, or listeners can fact check. I would have sold. I would have, I would have definitely sold. At least. You would have sold. How do you think about selling? Like hype, like we can we can take Carta, we can take another company in your portfolio. But how did you think? Anything that's there is for sale. Everything you see is for sale. <laughs> two things about selling. two things about selling. Tell me. I had good mentors, but I was also very conservative. Um, two things about selling is sell when you can, not when you have to. Right. So I grew up in the liquid markets, and um, one of the great things that people forgot in this fifteen-year private bull market that you know. We went through um, was that uh, liquidity matters. If I sell, like Robin, you know, we sold some Robinhood, you know, Fred sold Coin. People were people like us were selling on the way up. I said we can't. We don't know if our LP is not going to put that money in Bitcoin or Solana or Apple and do ten times better than us. So, like, who are we to like be the experts to not only manage your seed investing, but now manage your? You, you just skip that. We're now going to manage your public market investing. Um, so as a small seed investor, I think our job was just right or wrong was just get money back to our investors as soon as possible. Cause that's what we would want. 
Right. So a lot of that was just our own experience saying, what the fuck? Like, you know, this, this valuation's insane. And then the other thing is, if the founders were selling, uh, we also felt that we should start selling. You know, and the percentages are, are, are the hard part. And what's the right amount? We could argue, but um, between my mentors and my own conservative behavior and my own beliefs, I always felt like if you could sell uh, and and if you couldn't fathom underwriting that, and if you weren't willing to put more money in too, like what the hell are you doing? I imagine maybe the process is a bit more scientific than just picking a number. And Fred's once talked about, he usually sells like, you know, for USB, a third of the stake. I think in, in Twitter, he sold 30% of a Twitter stake um, when he had the opportunity to. Is there a number that you normally gravitate to? Or is there a range you normally gravitate to when you think about selling of an, of a, of an asset you've lost conviction in or you think is overvalued? I don't like the term overvalued or loss of conviction because those, those do matter. Right. But for us, it was more like, what fund are you in? What do you have to prove? Again, like, or is this something that you would approve of if you were on the other side of the transaction? Like think of like an LP, not just a GP. Mm-hmm. So, so in the me, I think we made where Robinhood is uh, in our first fund. It was a $6 million fund. And we had a chance to sell, you know, to return all that money in the fund after a couple of years. And in hindsight, probably not the best decision, but we were like, let's return all that money. You know, in 2015, maybe we made the investment in 2013. And by 2015, we could pay back the whole fund by selling a certain amount. And, and it was also at a billion dollar valuation. Back then, unicorns was not common. Yeah, it, it wasn't like 200 being, being minted every single year kind of thing. No, there was like 20. And so like to be part of like that elite group, I was like, didn't, I was like, I don't believe this. Like with the club that I'm in, I'm not really quite sure that there should be a club. Right. As much as I believed in Robinhood, you know, it went from an eight million valuation to a billion in a couple of years. Just mentally, I've seen stocks. I've never had something do that. So I didn't have a mental model for for this. This is not that long ago. It was 2015. So, um, you know, if I was an option trader and I had options in an Apple stock and I, or NVIDIA or Rambus or any of these things that like were up a thousand times in a year and a half, you kill for one of those opportunities. So that's the way I treated it as like once in a lifetime gift. And, you know, the other thing we had more, we had a lot of the stuff, like we had, we had invested in our second fund. So we, so our LPs were in a position not to second guess us too, because we had good communication with them. And it was a $6 million fund. And we had just raised a $20 million fund that also had Robin. And we were like, guys, we're selling some here because it's just smart. And you all had a chance to be in fund too. And that's why we, you know, so there was many factors. But go read Fred's post on this subject. The point is you return money to your LPs because you just don't know what they're going to do with the money. Right. And they could be on to something much better than you. I, so I I have a question. Feel free to push back and let me know if I'm getting too personal here, um, which is you had a $6 million fund and you had the opportunity to sell a proportion of your Robinhood stake to return the $6 million fund. I imagine for a $6 million fund. Oh, in two years. Phenomenal. Actually, that's, that's phenomenal. Um, and that's probably like, that puts it in, in like top percentile and just in terms of re- like fund right. returns. Um, and, and so my question is, in a $6 million fund, I imagine most of your LPs are like individual LPs. 
And I, from my conversations, albeit anecdotal, a lot more of individual LPs think a lot more about taxation, like, you know, QSDS laws and pass through and all that. Was that a, a, a conversation that came up when you had the opportunity or when you actually did like return the fund with, by selling part of Robinhood? Yes, um, for sure. But again, it was, it's financial companies, so not eligible for QSBS either way. True. So, so that matters. The second thing, I wasn't short-term at that point, capital gains. And I generally, anytime I've made a decision over tax, I'm wrong. So it's just be consistent. Is, you know, if you listen, first of all, when we invested at 8 million, the company was a laughing stock, like at our LP meeting and our, people thought it was a dumb idea. Let's not forget that also people thought Robin Hood still do think it's a really dumb <laughs> idea. Forgetting what you think of it now, right. at the time, do-it-yourself investing was like contrary. Right. right. It was all wealth. So you also have to understand we were making a very contrary entity. You know, I understood that it was going to be big, but no one else believed that. So we went from a period where like no one believed to now everybody believed. And then also I was like, okay, well, you know, that is another reason I was a little nervous. It's like all of a sudden I'm a genius because I got was right about a passionate, you know, thing that I saw, you know, being a thing. So I, you know, there, there's just all those decisions. So what it sounds like is when, and let me know if I'm putting words in your mouth here, but when an outsider becomes an insider, when the non-obvious becomes the obvious or the non-consensus becomes the consensus, that might be an opportune time to start considering, not saying that you should, but considering the exiting of some percentage of your positions. Correct, especially if you're making the bet on a non-consensus, which I think the best, I think at the seed stage, non-consensus. The reason you pick at someone like me is I'm weird. The reason Fred's an amazing investor or Roger Ehrenberg or people like Brad Felder, people that gave me money when no one else, what is a non-professional uh, GP? They gave me money because I'm weird, right? They, they gave me money because they trusted me, but they also know I'm weird. Therefore, if I start to think like them, we're all screwed, right? They are... So I have to think like me and what would Howard do and what would a professional person do? And they would fade themselves and they go, okay, this is non-consensus. Let's not become everybody else and start believing our own bullshit. Let's at least hedge our own vanity here and sell stuff. Now, the mistakes on what you sell and it's easy to second guess, but no one, in the end, it's a great fun. There's so many mistakes that you make along the way as a fund manager, you know. So if you if you know that you can return three to five times your fund, and and the difference is eight or fifteen, honestly, if the difference between an eight times fund and a fifteen times fund, and it just won't matter to the LPs in five years. They're still if they're if they're not happy with you, whether you're an eight times fund or a fifteen times fund, trust me, no one can. There's no thank yous. So there's, there's, you know, that's, that's an honest LP because I've been in some 20 times funds and I, and I, and I, and I love those people that return that for me, but they're not like, I don't think they're any smarter than the people that return six times a fund, you know, they just may be more degenerate in terms of how they hold <laughs> position and that may come back to haunt them in the next fund, right? So I think if they, if a great fund is 3X and that's what you think you can do, and you can insure a 3x fund early, then you should do that because no one's going to, you know, 
you're not Fred Wilson or you're not Sequoia. The odds of you being the best are low. And you need luck in all the mix as well. Yeah, best to be consistent and you're going to do better over time. I want to actually, because we've talked about you betting on, on startup companies. I know a good proportion of our audience are also LPs investing in venture funds. And you as yourself um, have won raised a fund to invest into great emerging managers. But I want to go back to the time when you were an individual LP. Um, how did you think about that calculus? And how did you think about swinging versus not swinging on, you know, a promise effectively? In terms of backing a manager? In terms of backing the manager. Yeah, I think it's the same decision as we, we you know, the thesis of founders are the new managers of the new founders, right? Tech is so distributed and so pervasive that, um, you know, we felt lucky to, there were so few people that wanted to be LP, GPs. Mm -hmm. It's not, listen, hedge funds are not a great business and being, people will learn that being a, a venture capitalist is not a great business, right? Like, you've got to return real money. Um, the era of like 2018 to 21 just, it was a bubble. I hope it happens again. God bless, but like it was a bubble. Um, and therefore, it's not that glamorous. And so, you know, if good people were coming to me with funds, and David Cohen at Techstars was one, and they also were struggling to raise money, I like that, uh, which most funds were doing until like 2017, 2018, then I would write a small check. And... Um, a few of them really worked out well. David had invested in, God, it was an investor in Uber and a couple other great companies. That was a 2009 fund. And I think it's returned 20 some next. Still still got a few companies left. That's amazing. That is amazing. It's, I just think Dave was seeing things that other people weren't seeing. The fund was really small at a time when um, valuations were really still, in hindsight, really low. Mm -hmm which at the time no one thinks that, but like obviously if you're doing Uber at 4 million versus the shit that was getting done at 20 to 30 million at YC and crypto, land, like just think in yeah. hindsight how like what a gift that was. That's the context that you need. And so obviously any manager you gave money to in 2009 to 2011, including us, our job was like just to be alive and you were going to return money. Right. And so a lot of that was just timing, you know, and I probably should have written more checks you know, in hindsight. So so I think it was more like people that I really liked, people that had started a company, obviously, that matters. And I think it matters more today. And people that were I think there was a period in time where you could do both. I think it was Web 2 is a very cool time that like being a founder like I was at Stocktoots put you in the flow of things. And there was such a speed with Zerp and with the cloud and with kind of YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn, kind of not charging the true rate of what growth, like what their network was worth. There was this arbitrage where you could acquire users. And, you know, the term growth hacking was abused. And, and unfortunately, it was just a fake news. Um, there was no growth hacking. If you had a great product, Everybody was online talking about shit for free and there was no, there was no, the algorithms weren't tuned properly. And so you, you, your reach was your reach. So if I promoted a product, everybody who followed me saw it. 
And um, so it was just a, a just an insane period of, of fair growth, uh, which people turned into the term growth hacking, which was, as we know, is just a fallacy. Um, nothing replaces a good product and great marketing. And now we're seeing that if you don't have great marketing and great product, good luck tweeting and YouTubing and doing everything else. You're falling on deaf ears. I have two questions. I have two questions. Um, one is how, and we'll probably table that for a second, unless you want to answer that first, which is how does your rationale or calculus differ today in terms of LPing to managers than it does when you were an individual LP investing into like tech stars and, you know, probably multi-coin and a bunch of these other ones. Um, and then the other question is, you mentioned a couple things of what you look for when you invest in, in great managers. You mentioned one, they're operators, right? They've built a company, they're founders of some kind. Two, um, which I found to be really interesting, they struggle to raise funds. And then three, good people. Um, I want to touch on the last part for a second and, and probably the second part as well. The last part, you say good people. I know this sounds probably very obvious of like, of course, you got to invest in good people. Uh, but good itself is a fairly amorphous term. How did you define what a good person was or is? Maybe good people is just a bad term because it's just too broad. You know, with, with David Cohen, I knew him really well. I knew Brad. I loved the seat that he had a table at. And it just seemed obvious, right? You know, he was struggling to raise $4 million. Um, when Multicoin, it was a different set of circumstances. 2016, 2017, everybody was making money in crypto, including me. I wasn't even... I, I looked back at some of my blog posts and it was just, like, hilarious. Like, I truly did not believe, right? Um, but I'm a student of the markets, and I was swept up in because Fred Wilson and some people I trusted believed I was following Bitcoin and Ethereum. And I made some money in Coinbase, my Coinbase account, just from holding uh, Bitcoin. And I remember selling it in December. I was in Israel. I remember selling it and writing about it in December of 2017, maybe turning 50K into a million bucks. And... Um, my partners had the fever. Gary and Tom had the, the freaking fever. They were like, you're an idiot. Uh, you're never going to get rich. Like all of a sudden they were experts. Like we, like I'm the one that got them into it. All of a sudden I'm the idiot for selling. <laughs> and, you know, and they would just screen capture like what I had sold and what I, I how much money more they were making by holding for a couple more months. And then the reality. And I remember uh, Vinny Lingam called me and said, listen, I'm involved in, Multicoin, really struggling to raise money. But I really, you know, I had just sold all my crypto and I was like, you know, maybe I'll hedge my stupidity and put like 100, 150 grand, you know, put some money in the bank. But in case I'm wrong, I'll, I'll give these guys 150 grand. I called Fred Wilson, who, who actually does crypto. And I said, Fred, will you take, you know, I never call Fred because I don't want to waste his time. But I'm like, you, you're Mr. Crypto. And, these guys seem really smart in Austin. And, um, you know, so Fred took the meeting. And uh, I remember having, like, a week later, I called Fred back and I go, Fred, we're like, did you have the meeting? And he, and, and he goes, yeah. And it's like, he did, Fred wasn't calling me, <laughs> me back. Luckily, I called him. And, and I go, what'd you think? He goes, oh, I've never met two more arrogant, uh, you know, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh. <laughs> 
know, thanks for not calling me back. He goes, no, but we're investing. And, uh, and so, uh, that was, I called up the guys and I said, listen, I'm, I'm into, um, luckily, uh, Schmuck Insurance put like 150 grand in their fund. And what's so funny at the time was I was like, they were struggling so hard to raise money. I think it was like a $5 million fund. And I was like, you know, make sure you, I need to put this through my IRA. Right. And if I had asked them to do that today, they'd tell me to fuck off. But at the time, because they needed the money, they jumped through so many hoops to let me invest that 150K, which is a huge difference to me because, you know, I don't pay taxes on, on the things that I got. So they went jump through hoops for me to let me put in money. And I will say the first two years, I think it traded down about 50%. And uh, so it wasn't like an overnight success, but they, they caught the Solana and helium runs and i would just say that wasn't about good people i didn't know them i hadn't met them personally but i researched them and fred you know blessed the you know their knowledge of blockchain and and what they were doing that one was a little more lucky and the network kind of played makes up for not maybe investing in again like if you're in the business these things kind of even steven out a little bit if if you're pretty good at it and you have good instincts but uh it was just more about making that extra call, having Fred look at it, uh, calling Fred back because he probably wouldn't have called me back. Who's uh, going to do the deal? And, uh, well, I, it wasn't his job to recommend right. them to me. Like, and he's you know, busy he wasn't as call me back saying, No, it was, he's not a promoter. Right. Like he was just, luckily I called him. He said, yeah, I, I never met you. Like they're arrogant. And I go, okay. I was like apologizing. He goes, no, we invested. So luckily I made that call and I just took a risk. You, you, you didn't meet them beforehand before making that investment decision. Fred told you they were the most arrogant like folks that he'd ever talked to. Why was that a sell for you? I'm out of curiosity. Was that a sell for you? Again, yeah, Fred has told me to do things and I didn't do them and that cost me before. It was like, there was enough... Again, it wasn't my LP money. I'm not sure I would have done it with my LP money. This is personal right. money, right? I don't, like, I'm not a crypto person. So it wasn't like I was rushing to call my LPs and say, we got to do this fund. It was just a personal, I knew the risk. I wasn't going to call Fred and complain to him. <laughs> I didn't call Multicoin when they were down 50% and go, what are you doing? You know, it was more like, maybe I'm an idiot. And it was more like schmuck insurance that worked out really good. And and you have a brand for, as you mentioned, being weird. And this was one of those weird things that was available to you. And um, like, because it's your personal. And I, and I checked correctly. I think if I had called Fred on Carta or, the, or made a few more calls on Carta to the people that I trusted. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, Naval was someone that I trusted. Like he was right. Like um, he was right. He's going to build that. He just took five years to build right. it. And in the meantime, they built a multi-billion dollar business. So so be careful. You know, you can over-diligence something. I still think a good manager or a good founder has great instinct. All the data in the world won't make you a better investor, I don't think. You know, I personally don't. I think there's still some art to this. And you have to have your instinct and your domain experience. And you have to understand how markets work. And you have to read people. And... Um, so there's all that that goes into it, but at the same time, uh, you'll never have perfect information. That makes sense. I 
I want to touch on something I, I mentioned earlier and that you mentioned as well, that you, you like, and let me know if I'm misquoting you, uh, but you like to invest in, in managers that struggle to fundraise. Why is, why is that somewhat something you're underscoring in your investment or in your internal calculus? Because usually those people are just off. You know, there's like institutions really like check. They go through check boxes. We're not very institutional friendly at social leverage you know, because of the way I tweet or dress or behave or talk, which makes sense. I mean, <laughs> okay, I don't fit in a certain box. So, so, but at the same time, I don't really think institutions are any smarter than individuals. So I don't really value how they think. Right. So, so I think a lot of great managers get overlooked because they don't fit in an institutional checkbox. Right. And I know this from being institutionally ready and still struggling to raise capital. So I just think there's just this whole dance that you do with institutions that doesn't necessarily make them smarter than you. They're just as lazy about going into data rooms as an individual investor. They're just as easily conned as we've seen, you know, at the end of cycles. Um, and then also, by the way, institutions, you know, once they raise money themselves, they, they're trying not to get fired. So you don't get fired by hiring Sequoia and Andreessen. You may not have good returns, but you're not going to get fired for putting your money with benchmark Sequoia. So a lot of the institutions in the emerging manager space, you should have been investing with us when Roger and Fred were doing. That should have been your only data point. Mm -hmm. Instead, their data point was like, you know, how do you... They were asking me questions I didn't know the answer to or I'd have to lie. So the whole process was kind of broken for a while in emerging manager funds. And, and Michael Kim really made a name for himself by, by just not just doing something that no one else was doing. Um, and... So I think the institutions just muffed for a long time. And I think part of this is cap is uh, capacity constraint. I think seed investing, if you look at the best investors like Fred and Roger, people that I know, they're, they capacity constrained themselves, $100, $150 million funds. They stuck to their ninning. And I'm not giving money to a fund that's 400 million. I just don't believe that you can return. It's not easy to return 1.2 billion. Right. So knowing both sides of the table, I just think institutions just are at a disadvantage. Because it's harder. Well, one, it's harder to put money to work. And two, it's... Well, they want to get fired. So Benchmark and Sequoia and Andreessen doing their job. They're making their funds bigger and they sucked everybody into those funds. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the Andreessen's, the Sequoia's, the Benchmark's, they're equivalent of like the IBM's in the, the, the industry. And like no one ever got fired for like buying IBM, right? Um, but it's the bet that one can make on an emerging manager that, you know, high likelihood of getting fired but there's a high there's an equally high well maybe not high likelihood but like there's a possibility that you could really go out of the park yeah i mean the idea of being a seed investor or a founder was like outsized return i mean the reason i loved the industry when i discovered it was the expectations were ridiculous meaning you could tell your lps they're going to lose all their money so you were on the seat like you weren't lying i'm not going to make you eight percent a year like this was a, a open field as long as you were honest with your LPs and said, listen, I don't like this. I think the risk rewards are tremendous here across the portfolio of 
you know, 20 to 30 companies. And by the way, you're going to lose your money. So this is like for your, this is for your silly money, right? And, but I have a track record, you know, we founded companies, we were diligent, we're consistent about how we think about pricing and, and valuations, and we're going to make you know, bets along these lines. I mean, that was like, that's what interests me in being a GP. It's like, I finally felt like I could explain what we were doing and the alpha matched the, the risk. And um, it was fun. I just felt like it was shooting fish in a barrel. And I was right because we still made a lot of mistakes and we crushed the averages. So I think if you can line all those things up, and I don't think it is easy to do that anymore or as easy, um, there's certain times when everything just aligns. I completely agree. Um, I want to touch on how where you are today, which is uh, now that you have a fund of funds to bet on multiple emerging managers, this is not out of your own checkbook. You can't write the, the check with the same calculus as you had for multi-coin, uh, albeit like a great investment. One, how do you think about investing in emerging managers now that you have fiduciaries when it comes to this? And two, um, how did you like? How was it different in pitching a fund of funds as opposed to pitching a fund like your six million dollar fund? Yeah, I mean timing that. I mean it was horrible. So because the timing's much worse. Um, you know, when we were raising this fund, it was like it didn't matter. People just didn't want to listen. And for good reason, right? Like it was just the end of a bubble and rates are starting to rise. So, so again, a lot of this has to do with just the reality of how the markets are. So I would say terrible time to do what we tried to do. Um, we were somewhat successful doing it, not as successful as we, you know, we, we, we aimed to raise a little more than we did raise. Um, and a lot of that makes me bullish on what we just went through is, a little more bullish than what I was when I was like out there raising money. Cause you know, getting no's is just part of the business. We were a founder. And so we were just, for our track record, we were getting a lot of no's and a lot of that was deserved because people had just been burned. Um, but a lot of that, I just started saying, wait a minute, this is kind of a signal that um, people are tired. Um, and there's, People have been making mistakes for the last five, six years. And, they, you know, they were, including us. And so kind of like got a little more bullish. And I, I became the largest basically LP of this fund because of the signal that I was getting while we were raising it. You know, if we're doing all the work and picking the managers and no one likes the work we're doing, I've been through that rodeo before. Yeah. So, so, so in hindsight, it was just like the market sucked. I understand why people are just hesitant. Um, but how we thought of emerging managers did evolve, right? Like we were at the end of this rolling fund era, which I kind of, even though I'm an angelist investor, I just, it became silly. It became a badge of honor to be a founder and run a fund. And I'm like, okay, that's one thing when the markets are good and growth is easy and money's easy. But like, you know, as Jack has proven by running two companies into the ground at Twitter and, and most people, including Musk is struggling, as you see, and he's supposedly the best entrepreneur. Um, just come on, like multitasking, even just on Gmail and uh, Twitter is hard. You know, the idea that like Jack took pride in saying he was running his company by iPhone is not 
funny. It's, it's irresponsible. It's irresponsible by him. It's irresponsible by the board to, to minimize how hard it is to build a great company, you know? And I just think it just got sloppy. And so as the managers, we just, you know, I'm sure we made some mistakes, but we tried to put that vibe out. Like we were pissed and we were looking for people that were going to take this seriously. So a lot of the managers, Garuda and Swift and Jeremy Jonker is like, we took, we went a little bit bigger in the funds. We chose funds that had more than one person uh, running the fund. We, we chose funds where people were doing this full time. You know, God forbid they, you know, have one job. And um, generally they were either a corp dev person who really knew a domain or they were an operator within a domain. So um, so we were pretty strict about that other than the few crypto bets, which who knows, anything goes. We just wanted the alpha and we just wanted the, the, the craziness because we've been right before. But... Uh, other than that, we, we really stuck with small funds, 30 to 100 million and uh, full-time people that had tremendous experience around their domain. And um, so I don't think we'll get these like 30 bagger type funds, but that's not our goal. And if, and if we do, we're, we are consider ourselves just lucky, not smart. I want to talk about luck in just a second. Um, but before I talk about luck, I want to talk about fund structure. Did I hear it right? And maybe I didn't, um, that the, your current fund of funds is structured as to both make bets in emerging managers, but also invest in crypto for the alpha? No, a few of the managers are crypto funds. That makes sense. Okay. Okay. So the fund of funds, I know there's some fun. The reason I ask is I know there are some funds that do 50-50 split where 50% is into emerging managers and the other 50% is into direct. And it's to help justify the double fee structure that they end up taking. Well, double fee, they don't take double fee, but it's like it, they take a one in 10, one in five, whatever it is. And that's on top of the two and 20 that the, the, the venture managers already take. And to justify that, they make direct investments into like series A, series B kind of outliers that come out of these emerging funds. Um, so I was I was curious on that side of things, but it sounds like the the, the fund of funds is completely 100% to emerging managers. I'd say we, we've got 20 to 30% that will invest in companies uh, that from these funds that uh, really strike our interest. Okay, that's fair. Um, but it could be, you know, could be less, uh, but we've kept a little bit of powder to like try and juice the returns where we can. That makes a lot of sense. I want to talk about luck. I did mention I was going to talk about luck earlier. Um, personally for you, and we chatted about a luck, like both in terms of anti-portfolio, in terms of things that you were seeing, but also I, I stumbled across something that I found really fascinating um, in doing homework for this conversation, which was you've invested in a growing coffee brand through the serendipity of your halfway stops as an avid cyclist up and down Coronado in California. And so I'm curious, how do you think about the role of serendipity as an LP today? Um, how much of these conversations, and there's so many, like there's so many funds out there today, right? How much of it is serendipity and how much of it is like you're doing your homework in the market, you're reaching out to great fund managers. How are you thinking about this? Eyes, ears, feet, right? Before the internet, you had a, uh, Domain experience was like a lot of travel. It was a little more risky to be an expert because you had to travel, you had to be off the grid. There was no being on, you know. So remember, I, I, I was pre-internet investor too. So <clears throat> if you read Phil Knight's book, you know, he would disappear for months at a time building his company, taking all this insane risk, flying and being disconnected. So imagine 
having to do that. To, like no one has to do that today, and nor should they. But you've got to understand that context. But so I think a lot of it for me is since I'm not a tech native person, since you know I don't know how to take apart machines, and I don't fully understand APIs. You know, I understand what they're supposed to do, but I couldn't couldn't code. Then I have to obviously have different skill sets. So I rely on my own knowledge and passion. So I think part of what we're looking for is that domain experience, right? I knew financial markets from trading and making money and losing money and participating in the industry for so long. I knew where the holes were, or at least holes that I felt. And I had a certain trust in my own, what I wanted other people would want. I couldn't prove that, obviously, but obviously I was right. Um, and so you have to have enough confidence to know that there's a hole that your needs or wants, there's a big market for those, right? And I, I don't like the word TAM, but like you have to kind of juxtapose your, your needs and wants for what other people want. And I have a good instinct around that, I guess. Uh, and that comes from just traveling, trusting my eyes and ears and my own passions around things. So I'm not a coffee investor. I, I drink coffee. But again, for my, per you know, I kept stopping at this coffee place in the middle of nowhere, in my opinion, in Imperial Beach. And I just started striking up a conversation with these guys. And they were military guys. And I said, you know, I, I, I can help you there. And just made a, a personal investment there. But in my cycling um, escapades and passion around learning the industry, I've really started to believe there's just a massive misallocation of capital that's going to get applied to this industry. And, I'm, you know, Lance Armstrong, obviously, and people like George Hincapie and people that have been in the cycling industry, you know, I, I, they know it better than me. But that could be a hindrance to them because they have all this baggage of, of thinking through it as a professional and like how screwed up the industry is, right? Like they can't see it the way someone else comes to see this. It's just a passionate user that understands the timing of tech and understands fashion and understands, you know, markets. So, you know, just by being immersing yourself in things, you can find incredible opportunities, but that doesn't happen overnight. And it's very hard to fake that. And sometimes that takes just a couple of years of, of just completely being immersed in something before the light goes off. So um, for me, that's luckily I live my life by like immersed in different, you know, um, industries and, and things that I'm passionate about and that's led to opportunities. So that I think it goes back to the number one thing. If you're curious, it's pretty hard not to stand out over time. Curious people just do better. It uh, doesn't mean they're better investors. I just think curious people have an advantage because they're not stuck doing one thing their whole life. And listen, America is a great place. If you do one thing well your whole life, you're going to be rich, but that doesn't mean you're going to be a great investor. Um, but curious people just have this edge because they're constantly playing with things and they and it's not made up. Like they're, I'm curious how things work. How do you find yourself exploring your curiosity and I'm, I'm going to try to make this a bit more concrete tactical for folks who are already curious or who would like to be more curious how do you think about curiosity 
um, how do you increase the luck, like the, the, sorry, the surface area for luck to stick, right? Do you find yourself reading for three hours in the morning? Do you find yourself going to meetups, hosting your own events? Like, how do you, how do you think about these things in terms of exploring your curiosity? I'm not, in, I'm not afraid of being yelled at, right? Like I start, I blog every day. I had a video company that I sold. I have stock tweets where people yell at me and call me Hitler. So, I mean, I'm experiencing life like on the, on the gridiron, as you would say, right? Like how it's people just, I'm putting myself out there. So, you know, I guess that's, you know, just, I deserve some of this because I'm putting a vibe out there, you know, and I got to take a lot of shit for that. So, so, so just waking up and having the daily habit of writing and sharing uh, the good, the bad, the ugly it pays dividends. Right. That's like making a bank deposit. You can't, you can't value it. It's definitely not worth it if it's not something that you want to do because it's really, you know, 15 years of doing the same thing every day is probably just, um, you can't factor what that's worth because it's probably not, it, it's just not worth uh-huh. it. Um, but now that I have all that built up, you know, now that's an edge that I have over everybody, uh, even if I quit tomorrow, because I've built up all these deposits and goodwill and you can go back and kind of see who I am. Right. And um, so I think that's really the edge. It's not just the curiosity. It's just the daily habit of sharing and networking. That's just compounded. That compounding is, is starting to just really pay off. It, it really is. It is, as they call it, a 10-year overnight success. And it might even be longer. It might be 20 years overnight success. You got to put... I think if you're really good, you can do it in 10 to 15 mm-hmm. years. Really focused and really understand. I just think beyond that, it's like the first 15 years, it's just, you're not going to get anything out of it. Yeah. And that's the trick of investing. Like what Warren Buffett, like 90% of his, net, his wealth has come after his age of 60. So, you know... And Jim O'Shaughnessy, some really smart, but you know, Jim says, you know, when you're in your twenties, you're a time billionaire. So, and when you're at my age, you're a time thousandaire. So the time to be doing stupid things is when you're in your twenties, not in your sixties. And so, you know, it's the 20 year olds we need to encourage to travel and do weird things, not the 60 year olds, but that's, that was shifted. My generation was all like save for retirement. Because when you're 70 and in your walker, you can go see a beautiful sunset <laughs> in Greece. Well, shouldn't you go see that beautiful sunset when you're 20 and take that experience and network and apply it when you're, you know. So I think everything's kind of flipped and, and people need to be making these investments much earlier. I completely agree. I, I honestly am biased to this. I had a mentor um, tell me when I graduated school when when I graduated college that he was like you should just take two years to just explore you should not go into the banking the consulting the you name it kind of thing. I'm not 10 I 10 years to explore so I mean just saying, if you're gonna live to your 90 because you have all this it information is a, I will be honest it is a very scary thought when you're 22 years old and you're like okay for 10 years I'm just gonna explore I mean don't get me wrong I come from an Asian background Asian parent household I was just like two years was enough. I was I was going to explore, and my parents were going to like agree with it for for a very short period of time. But that said, I think that's I learned so much more um, in that one to two years that I just 
I'm going to learn everything. I'm going to be completely curious. I'm going to reach out to everyone from Hollywood producers, the VCs, the founders, just people I really respected. And one of the folks I, I loved, and it's probably another conversation for another day, but was um, was um, you know this this professional stone skipper. And like, there's this whole underground world where people just skip rocks across lakes and um just the kind of repetition that the 10,000 hours it's necessary to be really good at it was just fascinating to me but I would never have like learned that or even explored that if I'd gone through the all right after college get a job and then compound those hours over time doing something that you may or may not be enjoying yeah by the time you're 18 I think most parents and testing can prove if you're curious or not and I think if you're curious, what the hell are you doing like committing? And if you're not curious, the faster you commit to a job and get on a track that like keep you out of everybody else's hair because you're an emo freak, the better. <laughs> like, and you have nephews that are should be locked and loaded and working, and I have other ones that should be traveling, right? And nieces. Like it's just the curiosity. I mean, there's a curiosity gene, and those that have it should really be out there using it and those that want to be on the track have committed to such and there's nothing wrong with it it doesn't mean but the faster we can compartmentalize a curious person and get them out in the world to find what the hell's going on versus someone who just wants the security um both are important and the world needs both um you know all the better but i think you know a curious person it's unfortunate, you know, a lot of it is just based on money and opportunity, but, you know, the more time you spend kind of finding out what it is you really want to do before you put those 10,000 hours in, the better. I completely agree. Um, a, a, a mentor figure of mine once told me, and I thought it was just too good to not share, uh, which was effectively when you're young in your career, you should take market risk rather than execution risk. Um, your execution risk, you're competing against the juggernauts in the industry. You're, you're competing against like folks like yourself, Howard, and where you've put in the 10,000, 20,000 hours, 20 years of experience. And I am just like, if I were to take execution risk, would just be trying to hone th- on things that you may already have the experiences, the network, the skill sets to do so. Whereas for younger folks, it's so much more important where you take market risk because then you're competing at a level playing field versus everyone else because everyone knows just as much about that market as you do. And if you can hustle and work faster, then you can compound your 10,000 hours at a much faster rate than hopefully folks who are um, time thousandaires, so to speak. For, for young people, they worry so much about what they're going to get paid and what the job title is. And... You know, for all the stupid mistakes I made early in my career, this is pre-internet, where it was much harder to start a company. Like the failure rate was much higher pre-cloud and pre, pre, you know, free internet than it was, you know, uh, before the internet. So companies failed just way quicker, and no one wanted to start a company. It, it took you two weeks to get the phone company to show up to your, to yeah. your office, right? Like you didn't have one-day Amazon delivery. Yeah, you just it was. It does get easier to start a yeah. business. Doesn't mean you should start one. It is easier. Now, now back then, right, it was it was a much different thing to start a business. And so the advice that I really needed back then and that it applies today is who cares? Just go work for a company that's actually working. Okay. And and by working I mean the product is flying off the shelves. Okay. Now that that is 
what does that mean, right? Like that means, you know, whether it's like with us, it's Manscaped or it was Robin Hood. If you know it's working, just get in the door. The, the janitor or whatever, there's so many holes to fill at these companies that are working, right? Um, you know, it's easy to go to a company that's not working and hide and like steal and like just wait for them to realize you don't know what you're doing either, but not a good experience. But if you go work for a company that maybe knows what it's doing, but product is flying off the shelf, you are going to learn a ton. And the opportunity for success is just easier because the product is flying off the shelf and that just doesn't happen that often. So really for, for, for young people getting into the market, just same way you would invest in a stock, just invest in something that everybody uses already. So that you don't have to push a rock up a hill. And we just all generally tend to push rocks up a hill. And a lot of times we should just be, you know, to, you know, just gliding a little more. And, you know, and I, and I say that in, in cycling too, you can ride alone, which is great for your peace of mind. Or you can ride in a Peloton, which is 30% faster, a little more dangerous, but you do go faster as a group. And um, so if you're going to go work at a company, go work at a, at a, at a, something that's just in the Peloton mode, which is just fly. And you may not make as much and you may not get the title that you want, but you're going to see a lot more and you're going to cover a lot more ground. You're going to get better mentorship. Uh, still going to have all the chaos that a bad company has. But in the end, it's just better people. Um, you'll see more high functioning things and uh, just less friction. Um, like underscore that note as well. Um, I think joining an organization, whether it's a firm, whether it's a company where the, the organization has a bias to action, like low friction points where people are already building things and there's this momentum that's already built. Every company, every firm is going to make mistakes, right? Um, whether you're at a good company or a bad company, but if you have a, if you're an organization that has a bias to action, the frequency in which you make mistakes is a lot faster and that learning compounds much faster if you're, uh, you know, at some, some organization, it might work out, it might not work out, right? And it might be- a Well, it just also attracts more talented people. Yeah. So you're, even if you're the faker in the group, you're just going to be around more talented people. So, you know, stack the odds. It's just like investment. You've got to stack, stack the, the odds. odds. So why would you invest in that company? They have higher margins, the product's working, they spend less on marketing, yada, yada, yada. Same thing if you're an employee. Like, how do you stack the odds in your favor? Like, work at a company that you can hide out and even and learn- <laughs> despite yourself because the product's just working. 100%. Um, okay. As we close out this conversation, we can. there's so much more ground I would love to cover, but I want to be cognizant of everyone's time here. Um, I have two more questions. One of which is for the kind of LPs out there who are just seeing such a velocity of deal flow at this point for, for like kind of GPs pitching to them. Um, on, on the element of pitches, and the second one is something that I personally really like on the anti- like, you know, we talk about anti-portfolio. I'd love to talk about the anti-resume just because, you know, we're in the theme of like not taking ourselves too seriously kind of thing. So with the first question, so Howard, you've seen your fair share of pitches over the years from a pitch that was handwritten on a piece of binder paper that came from within the four walls of a prison back in 2017 to your own pitch when you pitched an investor on with a hand drawing of what I could only describe as a as the predator and Porter's fries five forces having a child. Um, this is just fascinating to me, but how much in your opinion of a pitch 
whether it's as an LP or as a GP, how much of the pitch is artistry, the creativity and the storytelling, and how much of it is the cold hard facts? And has the former ever swayed you to invest when the latter did not check all the usual boxes? Yeah, it's generally not a deck that gets okay. me. I do take a lot of cold pitches, so I will occasionally open a deck. Just I've never been sold on a deck, but there's always there's the outliers. LifeLock was the deck that just randomly showed up and it was just so well done and well thought through. I called the founder. And then recently Distance, which is a, a cycling company we invested in, was a cold email from the founders and it was just such a well thought through deck. So, but good decks are so hard. I'm not good. I don't judge people by decks because they're so hard yeah. to do because you're not, don't, you don't have to be a good storyteller. You also have to be able to like put it visually with fonts and you know, there's trickery that can be involved there. So generally you want to talk to the founder and really size them up for domain experience and passion and really understand if they understand how cap tables work and how long the journey is going to be and like what their goals are. And that takes months, you know, maybe we can squeeze it down into six weeks. Um, and I think we we went through a period where it was like six hours yeah. and that just was doomed. We didn't know when or why, but it was doomed. It was, but it went on and you can't predict when it lasts. Now that we're outside of that era, you have to really, you know, know what you want in a founder and then like always kind of ask the right questions and really know how to go through a process. So I don't think there's any quick way to do this. I think a lot of it is just spending time with the founders not just on Zoom, but like having a meal with them, you know, slow playing things, speeding things up, seeing how they respond under different circumstances. And imagine a lot of this also echoes into the world of fund managers as well. Like when you're having tea with them and you're having lunch with them, it's the Zooms, it's the pitches, it's everything else in between cycling together and all that. Um, I'm curious, maybe like a, as a, like a shorter answer, like how, like you mentioned, it might take six weeks before you get to conviction in a founder. What does that range of timeline look like when it comes to diligencing and getting conviction in a fund manager? Well, we have different jobs within the firm, so I don't have to do I'm good cop, bad cop. Like I can say we like this deal, but now you got to talk to Tom and Gary who are going to like slow the process down and <laughs> you know, make sure that we're dotting our I's and crossing our T's. So it's a lot of that is like explaining to the founders early on how we work as a firm and, and then explaining that to other managers, right? Like, we have run a fund and we've run a fund that was six million now has a hundred million dollar fund. So it's like, we've actually built the firm that we're hoping that you can build. Um, so a lot of that just comes from seeing the end zone. I call it. like, you know, we prove that anybody can get in the end zone, but that, but also, but we've been there. Therefore, whether you like it or not, we kind of know what it looks like in the end zone. We've danced in the end zone. Um, and so, so part of that is like visually, like we know what it looks like, right? With all the, the warts and, and, and all. And we like to find people that have been in that end zone one or two times. Um, and I think for a period, it didn't matter. It was just like, everybody gets in the end zone. Therefore, let's just invest. And that was doomed. Um, and now we got to go back to how come you got in the end zone and like, did you not, maybe not did you deserve to be in the end zone? Because visualizing it does matter and being there does matter. But like just more like realistic, what have you done and, and what does it take 
to get there in a realistic world. And that's like eight to 10 years. You know, we've been through some companies that have been public, uh, to Mogul, Robinhood, LifeLock. So through three cycles, three different cycles. So it's eight to 10 years. So you're starting a company. We're going to give you money. It's going to take eight to 10 years for you to get public to at a 500 million to 10 billion valuation. That's the range, right? And you got to size that person up. Like, can they build a team? Do they have the heart to get that eight to 10 years to survive two or three years of shit where stuff just doesn't work in the hiring and the firing? It's a, it's a, it's a real journey. I, I said this is going to be like one of two questions, but I have one more question on this front for fund managers. Like obviously for startups, like, you know, hiring and firing and all that. But for fund managers, how much do you think succession, how important is succession planning in the world of like a fund one? Uh, is that important to you? Or is it just like metrics, returns, story? Yeah, I mean, we we went into it with the promise that like we can't promise you that we're going to be institutionally ready to ever back another fund. So we were just honest up front saying, why would we care? So we don't want a piece of your GP. We think there's an arbitrage here. We think there's an opportunity for even with extra fees to bang out real returns. And there's other reasons why we're doing this. We want to see companies. We wanted to like really build our network at the next level, which is like, okay, if social leverage is going to build this firm, we now have 19 managers in our emerging managers that we believe are founders. And therefore we, there's a hack there that if we pick good managers, we've now got knowledge that you know, that we wouldn't have been able to gain by just being our own fund ourselves. So, so a lot of it is just trying to hack our next level of own growth as a firm. And just really learn by watching other experts or, or betting on people that could help speed our own knowledge as we get to the next level of firm. Now, we may decide never to go and grow our firm, but um, this is just another curiosity of ours that we felt like should be scratched. I dig it. All right. So last question over here. Last uh, real question. Um, I mentioned the anti-resume side of things. Um, I'm a big fan of it. Um, and I've always had an anti-resume sitting in my folders where it's to literally highlight all the things that went wrong in my previous positions, but at least to help me understand like, hey, you know what, this is how much, this is the scar tissue I've built, but this is how I've grown as a person. So I'm curious for you on the anti-resume front of things. And this is a question, admittedly, I am a sucker for asking was like, what is the point in your career in terms of running social leverage and the fund that you wish you could have done better, you could have rewritten, or but that really has created the the investor you are today. Well, our second fund was better. So there were a lot, a lot of things we learned. Is I think six million was too small, right? and we were told that at the beginning, like you got to be able to follow on. So I think our mistake there was, yeah, it was too small. Meaning, um, you know, luckily the timing was so good that it didn't matter. But like not being able to follow on on your investments. And luckily we did follow on to Robinhood. We made an exception, but um, really we didn't have follow on capital. And the other, the other mistake that we learned in the SVBs became popular is we loved Robinhood. Like this again was our idea for being an emerging manager is when we took our pro rata of two to 4 million of the series A and B to our LPs who had said like, Oh, we'll put more in when you really, they all balked because they thought like everybody else, this is so expensive. Like what's their business model. And so, you know, we trusted our LPs to be there, you know, with more money behind us. 
So, so what we tell managers today is like, that's why we went with like 20 to 30 million on the low end for our managers. We were like, you know what? We were, don't trust your LPs. No offense to LPs, but <laughs> there are like, too many LPs, LPs are, listening yeah. to this that, that that's going to get called out. No, but your LPs are busy. Like <laughs> LPs should be remember that you hired someone and you're paying them two and 20 to do their right. job. Meaning they got to do this. Right. Like if you ask all your LPs what they think, they're going to get a hundred different answers. So we had conviction. And when we had to go back outside our $6 million fund to resell Robinhood to raise our, we had to give our pro rata back to like Sequoia because we couldn't raise our pro rata. Like talk about leaving money on the table. Like that's on both the LPs and the GPs. So if you are going to be a GP, take it seriously, take your time. And maybe it's not so smart to, to luckily the markets were good and no one, you know, it cost me a lot of money, but like, that's, that's the business, right? Like, but if you are going to be a manager, really think through like what it takes to build a good fund. And I think you got to have enough money for follow-ons and not count on your LPs and SPVs. And again, we just went through a period where everybody's flying and SPVs, money was rolling, but that ain't going to be the case anymore. So having some methodology behind how you're saving some proportion of your fund's capital to follow on your best investments is something that you find to be very interesting in fund managers. Not interesting. It's just, a, it's, you, it's a gotcha. must have. You can't, you're not going to get away with what we got away with. And and that was a moment in time where everybody has these funds and you're just like, I'm going to make 30 bets and that's it. Uh, and maybe at a 2 million world evaluation world, that matters. But at a 20 million valuation world where valuations are shrinking, my gut is that just won't help. And most fund managers get diluted by 70, 80% if they, you know, on exit. And so they're going to lose on so much of the upside. So again, we, again, I hate being, I just was lucky. Like I said, I believe a lot of what, was just the right place at the right time. And so I don't want to take too much credit for that. But I would say as assuming things are going to get harder, you have to be more professional and follow a playbook, which is keep money for pro rata. Keep money for pro rata. I, that is a better place to end on than any. And so Howard, thank you so much for your time here. As one half-ish question, um, for folks who want to learn more about social leverage and what you're building, how do they find you? I know you're you're on all the socials. You have your email out there. Where's the best place for people to find you? Uh, where is the best place? I would say my blog, like email. So howardlinson.com. You know, I write pretty much every day. I do some videos. I return most emails. Email. Email is the greatest. Um, and I love it. And you can you write so well and so often that I am. As, as a fellow writer, and I only write once a week, I am astounded by just the quality of content that comes out on a daily, close to daily basis. Um, anyways, Howard, I so, so appreciate you. You are absolutely amazing. Um, and thank you for, for being on here. Yeah, fun. I'm excited to see the final uh, product. I'm happy to help. Curious people just do better. Hello, Supercluster fans. You've seen the logo at the beginning. And now we're here to address the elephant in the room. And the big question is how intertwined is Superclusters and Alchemist Accelerator? And the truth is Superclusters and Alchemist Accelerator are two completely separate entities. Other than the fact that it is only I, David, your host, who is able to traverse between the multiverses. And so the reason Alchemist is a sponsor for Superclusters is the same reason why I ended up joining Alchemist. Um, and it's for two reasons the team, 
and the product. So let me elaborate a little bit. For the team side, I was doing a bunch of diligence, homework, reference checks before I joined Alchemist. And I stumbled across a story which was between Ravi and an early team member of Alchemist. Um, and for the sake of this story, I'm going to call that person John. So Ravi and John were working late at night because they had a deadline coming up. And as they were about to leave, Ravi found out that John didn't have a place to stay and had been sleeping out of his car the entire time. And the next thing Ravi did literally blew my mind, which was Ravi gave the keys to his place to John and said, John, you're free to stay here for as long as you want. And I knew instantly that this is the team I wanted to join. This is the, the, the culture I wanted to be a part of. Um, the second thing is the product itself. Um, Alchemist has built this really robust product called The Vault. And it is the epitome of Peter Drucker's infamous line, which is you cannot manage what you don't measure. And so for the uninitiated, what is Alchemist Accelerator? Alchemist Accelerator is your startup accelerator for companies that monetize from enterprises. And so don't take it just from me. Uh, we've backed incredible companies, including names you've heard of, LaunchDarkly, Privacera, MoEngage, and we're also backed by some incredible LPs and investors, including Coastal Ventures, Mayfield, Salesforce. And now, between you and I, I can't share any of the numbers, and if I do, my compliance officer, our compliance officer, will literally gobble me up for breakfast, lunch, afternoon tea, and dinner. And personally, I'm too young to die. And But I will say, the numbers, they're great. Like, they're really great. And so if you're curious and want to get involved in Alchemist um, and the ecosystem, check out alchemistaccelerator.com backslash superclusters. And that superclusters with an S at the beginning and at the S at the end. And we'll also include these links in the notes. Hey, Superclusters fans. This is David from Post and want to share a few things before you go. If you're tuning in from the YouTube universe, and if you like this episode, and you want to see more of it, consider subscribing. It's free. Let us know down in the comments which LPs you'd want to see next, or topics you'd like and want to hear more of. If you're tuning in from the audio universe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever content finds your ear, and you liked what you heard, give us a follow. And lastly, want to share a quick disclaimer from our legal friends. While I am the head of investor relations at Alchemist Accelerator, and that Alchemist Accelerator is one of our proud sponsors, the views expressed in this episode are for informational purposes only and are solely the views of myself and the guest alone. They are not representative of Alchemist Accelerator. None of the views expressed herein constitute legal, investment, business, or tax advice, and any allusions or references to funds or companies are purely for illustrative purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment recommendations. Consult a professional investment advisor near you prior to making any investment decisions. And that's all from me. See you on the next.